Today on Heavy Networking, we're talking storage network design. We're discussing NVMe over fabric where your Ethernet and IP network is the fabric. Not, not that those are the only fabric choices you can make with NVMe over fabric, but uh, we'll probably spend most of our time there. Now, many NVMe over fabric discussions focus on what's happening inside the storage packets themselves because, hey, NVMe is super cool tech. But in this conversation, we will focus on the network. What's the topology need to be? What are the latency and loss characteristics of an NVMe transport fabric? What QoS tools should you be considering? How do they work and when should you use them? Our guest for this vendor-neutral conversation is Jay Metz. Jay, you are no stranger to the Packet Pushers podcast network, but for folks who do not know you, would you please introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hey, my name is Jay Metz. I am a director of systems design and engineering for AMD. I work primarily on storage networks, storage itself, uh, memory systems, that kind of thing. I'm also the chair of SNIA, the Storage Networking Industry Association, and I'm a former board member of the NVM Express Group. So I've got some experience across the board with, with the topic. Experience, to say the least, uh, going way down into the guts of this whole thing. We could even say some of what we're going to talk about is perhaps even your fault, Jay. It, I, yeah, well, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, let's start at the very beginning here. What is NVMe over fabric? So NVMe over fabrics is a generic term to discuss the connection between the NVMe protocol and the underlying transport. And it really refers to the fact that there is a layer of bindings between the protocol and the transport, which identifies everything from authentication and authorization and the way that the packets are formed. But it's a shim layer between the NVMe protocol and the transport layer. And in, in NVMe normally would be over, I guess, a PCIe bus. And so what we're saying is take the commands that would have happened over that bus, like inside your computer where you don't have to think about it, and put it over some other kind of a transport. As a matter of fact, yes, it was it was designed to be a PCIe uh, related protocol. Uh, the idea was that we were going to shift from using a device metaphor, which is where we were working with, you know, SCSI, SATA, SATA, that kind of thing, into a more of a memory semantic kind of approach. And and CPUs don't talk devices natively. That's why you needed to have adapters. With PCIe, CPUs can talk PCIe natively. And so by putting the storage onto the PCIe, you could have a CPU talking directly to, to the uh, the storage device. Um, which was acting as a memory device or an extended memory semantic is probably the better way to put it. Now, over time, what wound up happening was that people wanted to go outside of the box and they started to say, well, what if I were to put this onto a network and so I can reach these things, you know, through uh, other, other network protocols? Um, and we've already got some pretty familiar experience with reaching memory over networks. You know, Rocky, iWar, Rocky V2. These InfiniBand is a is a uh, the RDMA protocol, which is the basis for Rocky and iWarp. Um, all of these different protocols really have to do with being able to transport the you know the the DMA reliably. Now, what happened was uh, last year, uh, I believe it was last year in 2020, 2020, as a matter of fact. So I guess it was a couple of years ago. Uh, we had we had what we call a refactoring of the NVMe protocol. So technically, NVMe over fabrics is really just a generic name because PCIe is a transport layer, is just like Ethernet is, just like TCP and fiber channel is. It's, it's, so we've treated PCIe as a transport as opposed to really tightly coupled because it was just an awful lot easier for developers to work for NVMe or the transport and then just make sure that it worked across the board regardless of which one you used. Okay. 
All right. So in this context, uh, Jay, I, I wanted us to bring that out just to help people understand, even though we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of what's inside those storage packages, as I said in the intro, we, we don't really want to focus on that today. It is important to understand it is sort of a memory access model and latency matters and uh, losslessness matters and, and so on. So in that context, uh, we want to, as network engineers, understand how that might drive uh, some of our NVMe over fabric design and and architecture. Uh, we're still premature for having that part of the conversation, Jay, because we haven't even talked about what transports carry NVMe over fabric. Because, I mean, it, TCP is one of them, but it's just one. What are the other ones? That's true. You're getting excited. You're getting all <laughs> getting all, all, all up into it, like, oh, let's go, let's go. Yeah, TCP yeah. is one of them. It's, it's the most recent of the official transports. Um, you know, it, it, RDMA and RDMA-based uh, solutions like Rocky and InfiniBand are the other one. Uh, and then, of course, there's Fiber Channel. You know, uh, which is a uh, a protocol that's actually being developed or developed by the T11 group rather than the NVM Express group, but they work tightly together. So yeah, there's there's really the um, those those three official well four if you count PCIe those are the official transports for NVM Express. And when we're ta- when we're describing this these transports, what we're really saying is, hey, take that storage you know, packet or datagram, I guess, and stick a wrapper on it. Stick some kind of stick an InfiniBand wrapper around it. Stick uh, Ethernet and IP wrapper around it. And that that's really what we're getting at, yeah? That's one way to look at it. Um, there's there's two aspects of this that are kind of important to note for a, you know, just maybe well, I guess in this particular case is just kind of a trivia. There, but there's two elements to keep in mind. One is the command set and the control plane, which is what a lot of people are talking about when they refer to NVMe. And the other is the data plane, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. the data plane does have that wrapper that you're talking about. Um, but the way that the relationship works between a host and the corresponding target is slightly different depending upon whether you're using RDMA-based uh, or TCP or fiber channel-based. But um, generally speaking, we, yes, it's it's kind of a it's a wrapper the same way that you would encapsulate you know an L3 into an L2, you know by by adding a CRC to it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's there's layers just like there is in any other kind of uh, you know transport, but. Uh, I, I hesitate to try to say wrapper in the sense that, um, you know, there's there's kind of this tunneling menu, you know, mechanism because that's not really the case. It's an it's a capsule, true, but um, it's not as if you are uh, spending a lot of awful lot of overhead to to, to, to transport each individual uh, message back and forth. Okay. So we've mentioned fiber channel, uh, RDMA, including InfiniBand and Rocket. We've mentioned uh, TCP. Uh, as all different transports. Well, how, how is NVMe over fabric typically deployed? Do is it like one of these tends to be the you know the best option or? Well, it, it's like anything else. There's a trade-off, right? I mean, the, the idea is that they all have pros and cons. They all have trade-offs, uh, some of which have to do with what you currently have, and some of which has to do with what the application is for. And what I think people may be finding out is that if, if they go with what they're familiar with, let's say, for example, you have a, an, a, a layer three routing person who says, well, I'm just going to use TCP because I don't want to even bother with Fiber Channel or Rocky. Fair enough. But if you start designing you know, your, your network as if it were a TCP network and what you really need is something more deterministic, you could wind up getting in trouble. So they each have a sweet spot. If you're looking for you know, uh, an existing fiber channel mission critical environment where you're, you've got highly transactional data and you really want to have the, you know, the prescription, you know, fiber channel, you know, NVMe fiber channel is the way to go. If you really want to have a pod, a rack 
of of hosts and and storage that is accessible, Rocky V2 will probably give you the best performance in a single rack. And then if you want to go beyond that, you know, TCP, if you're looking for the scalability, TCP is probably the way to go where you're looking at discovery uh, controllers and you're looking at, um, you know, really sophisticated traffic shaping. TCP is probably an awful lot easier to configure. So it's going to depend upon your particular needs and the applications that you're running. And part of this is it's not as simple as checking a different box when you do the configuration. Say, I'm going to use Fiber Channel. Well, no, you'd have to have a Fiber Channel SAN already in existence to, to leverage that or be buying one and building it out from scratch. So there's, there's a potentially yes. a business component, an expense component to this too, Jay. Of course. And and that 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 all involves planning, right? So, so the idea is that it, anytime you talk about a storage network, you got to plan. And I think I think you just sort of implied something, or maybe I just inferred it, um, which may be one of the biggest gotchas for network admins, which is that if you're dealing with storage, it's it's got to be pre-planned. You can't just simply add on a device into a network and expect it to work like you could with, you know, uh, a NIC, for instance. You know, or if you just want to have connectivity into your network, that's not the best way to run a storage network. So. Everything has to be planned in advance, even if you're not really sure how many different devices you're going to have. But if you're talking about, um, you know, a lossless type of an approach with whether it be Fiber Channel or Rocky, you need to plan well in advance. So even a Rocky implementation, which is Ethernet, is still going to cost you in the way of, of planning time. And not to mention, you know, the, the proper devices and the proper configurations and switches and that kind of stuff. Uh, okay, so now you're you're implying, or I'm inferring, that uh, the network design really does matter. We might even need a lossless network. But uh, okay, so what's going on here that's different? Because uh, to my shame, I used to run iSCSI over kind of anything, Jay. I mean, it could be horrible, lossy, oversubscribed networks. Uh, I could definitely see on iSCSI ports that packets were being dropped very definitely, but it worked. It may not have been the highest performing thing in the world, but it was good enough. So what's the big deal here with NVMe over Fabric? Well, that's the, that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, iSCSI in particular was if you wanted block storage, that was good enough. You weren't looking at having 10,000 nodes on an iSCSI network in a, as a general rule, not to mention the fact that it's just a nightmare to kind of try to configure 10,000 nodes with iSCSI Ethernet addresses, right? So uh, very few people actually use the, the name service for iSCSI because it just wasn't as reliable as they wanted it to be. So they tended to be rather small. You didn't do best effort. They tended to be, you know, single gig networks that didn't have an awful lot of crucial data. You know, I, I would not necessarily personally want to run an Oracle database on a one gig Ethernet network running iSCSI, you know, <laughs> uh, so the, so the application makes a big difference there. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why when you when the application is king, we say that it, it really is true. And the, the, the characteristics of storage networks in general, and this is the part that is probably the one thing that people should to take away with is that storage is a different animal than regular land traffic. It is, it is not the same kind of best effort that you would normally get. If you, if you run a ping, for example, or a trace route and you see the little asterisks going across the CLI, you know, it's uh, you're like, Oh, well, I'm just waiting for this. And storage doesn't react that way because storage has timeouts, right? And storage has uh, retransmissions built into the system. And so the closer you get to the wire, whether it be Rocky or Fiber Channel or something along those lines, the more rigid the architecture has to be. Otherwise, you wind up with unintended consequences. And we're going to get into some of the details about that mm -hmm. with like, you know, priority flow control and what happens with that. But but 
as a general rule, storage networks are planned networks. You know the relationship, even at a high level, between a host and its corresponding storage target. You so have to. By, by planned, you're, you're saying you know, as the network engineer or the architect, what the characteristics of that network need to be, and you are building the network to deliver that specific outcome. That's right. Okay. Because there are certain there are certain types of applications that have bandwidth characteristics that are predictable, um, and they may be predictable. That doesn't mean they're going to be easy, right? So if you've got you know predictable bursty traffic coming out of you know certain types of of workloads, you want to make sure that the network end to end is able to to handle those bursts without losing anything. Now, when I say losing anything, that could mean in a lossless environment like Rocky or Fiber Channel or uh, any kind of time you, you're, you're, you need to make sure that you have in-order delivery. That means that you need to have enough overhead to, to accommodate, you know, those types of bursts. And they can happen at irregular, you know, uh, intervals. At the same time, if you are you know, just having some like, kind of like best effort type of uh, of an approach, uh, you can probably get away with um, being a little bit more lax on the relationship between, you know, those links and the oversubscription and the fan and ratio, but you're still within a margin of error that doesn't go away. And, and if you treat a storage device like it's a, a regular host NIC or a regular IP address, you will wind up getting burned. It's just that simple. Well, so can I even run a converge network that, in, that is just, you know, I've got a bunch of data that is best effort traffic, but it includes some NVMe over fabric. Is that even possible? Absolutely. It's called FCOE. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I mean, the joking aside, I mean, the, the very principles that we were talking about 15 years ago with converged Ethernet is is now exactly the way we do things. There's no difference between running Rocky V2 and running FCOE on the network side absolutely no difference you're still handling the oversubscription ratio you're still handling the uh, the fan in ratio you're still handling the bandwidth guarantees you're still handling you know the the classes of service and the and the uh, appropriate vpn and alignment across the networks you're still doing end to end deterministic storage networks it's no different so you're looking at switches that support data center bridging and priority flow control that that give you these features that you need so that you can control the network in that converged network situation um, dealing new. with you, you you put that storage traffic in a class and then effectively you give it uh, some flavor of QoS treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the in QoS from that perspective is usually done on a link by link basis. Right. Um, QoS on an end to end uh, level for storage is is not um, something that we talk about very often or very frequently. Maybe certain vendors may have something solution like that, but QoS is effectively on the link. It happens. Mm. It happens on the wire, and then what happens on the endpoints is what you do with that. You know, uh, with that bandwidth once you have it. So ultimately, um, yes, the PFC, the you know, the enhanced transmission selection, which is the the DCB version of QoS. Um, yeah, as a minimum, that's what you're going to want to have if you want a converged network. Um, you know, granted, it's it's a lot easier if you have a lot of bandwidth to play with, but you still want to make sure that you have a, an understanding of what's going on. And what what have you seen customers typically do? Do they typically go that converged route with those sorts of switches and get that QoS scheme in place to make it all work, or do they like I've been in a lot of conference rooms where the decision was, do we do that, or do we actually buy some dedicated switches just for storage traffic so we don't have to think about this? I've seen both. Um, where I think people get caught out is that they don't have a good communication with their application teams. 
And this is particularly true when, when you get into these large abstraction layers and virtualized environments where the application teams and the DevOps teams are so far away from the networking and storage guys that they don't communicate at all. And that's where things can get really kind of messy because um, you know, the network people and the storage people are like, well, you know what, I don't even want to screw around with this. I'll just go ahead and create a dedicated system. Right. And, and that's, that's perfectly legit. Uh, in some environments, that's the way to go because that's the way the layer eight problems happen to fall out. <laughs> if you need to be very, you know, kind of economical, however, you can't afford to avoid those conversations. So then the risk is that they will take a particular design guide of their favorite vendor and they will just simply write down everything that they can think of that the vendor tells them to do uh, and, and hope the stars align. Like, so for mm -hmm. example, a network admin may, may take a, you know, a, an Arista design guide or a Cisco design guide or something along those lines and say, oh, I need to, I need to click this tech. I need to write this CLI. I need to do this. And why isn't it working? You know, why am I getting these, right. these floods and storms and stuff that aren't supposed to happen? And, and the answer is because storage is an end-to-end -end problem. It's not a hop-by-hop -hop problem. Mm. Which I think you're alluding to something else there. Something else strikes me. Just because you have a dedicated storage network, if you chose to go that way, doesn't mean mm -hmm. you just plug in all your storage endpoints and everything's fine. You still would need to consider a QoS scheme of some sort. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can still mess up a fiber channel network. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> talk about a dedicated network. You can still screw that around pretty easily. As mm. a matter of fact... The, the lessons we've learned in the last 25 years of fiber channel are the same lessons that networking admins are learning right now about doing Rocky, right? Because network design and fiber channel is specifically related to the amount of bandwidth you need with the overhead for each network, I'm sorry, each end device across the network end to end. That's why you have oversubscription ratios of hosts to targets as low as four to one, sometimes rarely, but sometimes two to one right? Two devices host yep. to one storage target. And that's how they avoid, you know, multi-hop head of line blocking. Hmm. Now, the idea behind a, a fiber channel network is exactly the same as a, uh, as a Rocky network, which is exactly the same as an FCOE network, which is in order delivery is absolutely paramount to make sure that you get the, um, you know, you get the, the appropriate good storage throughput that you need. Right. Yeah. And the way it does it is through a crediting system as opposed to a let's push it as far as it'll go. And when it breaks, then we'll pull back, which is what TCP does. Right. So uh, TCP pushes, 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 in, pushes. Yeah, right. TCP yeah. pushes as hard as it can until it doesn't get acknowledgments back. And then it slows things down and does its retransmissions right. and then ramps back up again. And that window slides open and closed, depending on the network characteristics. With, right. with a crediting system, you're describing I can't send unless I have credits, something like that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and retransmission is is a lot more limited, um, you know, in those kinds of environments. Now, they exist. I mean, you do have retransmissions and you do have resends. But um, in, in, an, in an environment like that, what winds up happening, it becomes extremely inefficient and it can actually wind up causing knock on effects later on down the network. That's what head of line blocking actually winds up doing is that you you effectively create a cascading effect of these crediting systems being starved. And uh, it's been happening. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about credits like buffer to buffer credits for fiber channel or pause frames for Ethernet. It's the same principle, right? Mm. You effectively you, you effectively fill up the buffers, but you can't send anything. And therein lies the big problem. And it all has to do with the fact that you need to make sure you understand what the consequences are before that uh beyond that one link 
You know, it's yes. not just what the host does, not just what the target does, it's not just what happens between the, you know, the to- the tour and the and the and the spine, you know, that kind of thing. Which leads us to another question, which is about topology. So the more complex the topology, the more hops I need to go through, the potentially the more complex the scenario is between host and target. Um, does fabric in NVMe over fabric mean something? Does it imply leaf spine or, or something like that? No, no. Fabric fabric really is, like I said, it's a generic term to describe, you know, doing NVMe over a transport. Hmm. That, that's really what it means. And, and it's kind of a misnomer. It was it was one of those things that I was never really happy with, because for those people who are in storage and storage networking, what a fabric means is that every device knows what's going on in every other device. You know, it comes from fiber channel, right, which has a fiber channel fabric. And and it's a well understood name service that controls and, and mandates, you know, where the traffic is going and the routing protocols are all gone through this fabric where every device understands what's going on with every other device. Ethernet doesn't typically have that kind of environment. No, so right. it's a kind of a it's kind of a misnomer uh, where you get these, you know, these best effort networks using the phrase fabric as if, you know, the, the knowledge is there by the end devices and it's not. So what fabric really implies is that the best practices for storage networking, whether it be lossless or lossy, have to be followed regardless of the size of the network, but it has to be consistent throughout. So if you want to think of a fabric, you just think I need to have consistency throughout the network. All right. My, my settings have to be consistent. My, you know, my, my bandwidth allocations have to be consistent. My settings have to be consistent. My expectations have to be consistent. And this includes growing over time as well. That's probably the best way to describe what a fabric means in an Ethernet environment for NVMe. Which does lend itself to a leaf spine topology, um, as can. you describe yep. it. Just a, a simple three-stage clove fabric would meet much of what you just described. That predictability where you know you're going mm-hmm. from leaf to spine, back to leaf, and that's it. You're going to have equivalent bandwidth from switch to switch. Uh, you know you have consistent oversubscription ratios, and mm-hmm. unless you've done something uh, a little silly with your host and target positioning uh, at the edges of the fabric, you're going to have a pretty even traffic distribution as well, which, right. again, lends itself to that predictability as traffic moves uh, through that fabric. So, But to your point, that isn't the only viable solution here. You can run this over anything. If you want to have an arbitrary topology, fine. It's just that you're going to have a lot of trouble maintaining that consistent traffic behavior, that consistent latency profile, et cetera, that you're mm-hmm. looking for if you have an arbitrary topology as opposed to something that's very well defined. Right. And and a lot of times what you'll find is you can see a mix of um of deployment types. For example, if you wanted to do a rocky deployment with inside of a rack. And then you have NVMe over TCP to go across the rack or east-west, right? Across the, sorry, across the least spine network, east-west. Perfectly fine to do that. You're still talking NVMe from a host to a target. You probably use different applications for those. Like you need really latency sensitive, you know, maybe an AIML workload that you're going to be putting inside of a rack with NVMe storage. Sure, put that inside of a rack. You're not going to go over the over the core. You're just simply going to keep it inside of one contained, you know, physical space. And your latency is well understood. And then if you need to have other types of of storage, block storage uh, traffic, nothing wrong with using TCP. And you can even do that over the same Mm -hmm. converged links that you'd be, you know, from the host to the top of rack. You just have, make sure that you have a class of service for NVMe over TCP and a class of service for your Rocky. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Nothing wrong with doing that, but it does mean as, again, as the network engineer, you need to understand what these different, uh, what the different demands are of the different protocols, where they fit, where they don't fit. 
and you'd need to be saying, hey, you're all of a sudden you're trying to do Rocky and you're trying to go out of the rack. That's not what we intended. We need to keep it in the rack. So we need to rethink something as you work with different folks in the IT team that are deploying yeah. the application. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people saying, well, all you have to do is, or you just have to. And anytime I hear the word just, I always get a little bit of my hackles raised about that whole thing because <laughs> it means that somebody's not really understanding, you know, the nuances here. Um, you know, Rocky V2 is an incredibly powerful tool, but like any incredibly powerful tool, you could wind up hurting yourself with it if you're not careful. And um, simply saying, I all I need is to have a, a Rocky V2 on a lossless link across a network is not enough, right? That, hmm. and, and that's and, and I've been watching. I've been reading through some of the some of the you know the design guides and through some of the some of the material. And one of the things that I've noticed, and it's been very difficult. You probably had the same problem. It's almost impossible to find a design guide that talks about network topologies for Rocky V2. They always talk about a single switch environment and what you have to do on the link. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting, because. <laughs> Because what it, I think that's one of the reasons why people are saying, well, all I have to do is have two switches and make sure I have a you know PFC going between them, and then I'm good, right? And as long as my as long as my RNICs are all configured right, I don't have any problems because that's what the design guides say, mm. and uh, and I, I know why they do that because it is impossible for somebody who's writing a design guide to anticipate every single network topology that's out there. So there's this there's this natural gap between the people who need the information and those who are able to provide it, and quite frankly, most of the people who are writing those design guides are usually writing from the storage perspective anyway. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, yeah, you you like we go back to the very beginning, planning and under, understanding the unintended consequences are going to be critical. So let's let's talk about because we've kind of circled circled around the uh, the topic of priority flow control and QoS and that kind of stuff, and this might be a good time to you know to, to well, dive into that. Well, before, before we get we do. there, before we get okay. there, there is another big question that I want to ask that's going to help us set up that part of the conversation, which is this: Ooh, big questions. from the network engineering perspective, what are the characteristics of a network fabric that reliably carries NVMe traffic? Now, I know from what we've been t saying so far, there's a bit of it depends here, um, mm -hmm. but in general, when we're thinking about the goals of this fabric, we've got uh, network engineers think a lot about latency, loss, and jitter. If we were mm -hmm. to frame what we're trying to get done with uh, NVMe transport on this uh, network fabric in terms of latency loss and jitter, what what are we worried about? What are the concerns here, Jay? In the storage world and storage networking, I'm using storage networking and storage to be kind of synonymous here since this is the topic. Um, the the worst thing you can possibly do under any circumstances is loss. Now, in <clears throat> networking, excuse me a second. Let me try to take that again. <clears throat> in storage, the worst thing that you can possibly do is have loss. And it's not the same thing in a networking world where loss really is constitutes a drop and then you restart or you retransmit. In storage, loss means you're it's gone. You're not getting it back ever. And that's one of the reasons why storage admins have been so paranoid because it, it, when you have loss in a storage network, you find yourself in front of a congressional committee. So loss is considered to be really, really, really bad. Now, in, in a TCP world, if we start dropping things off, it's kind of a metaphor for loss because you've lost the time that you're not going to get back for doing that, that, that bandwidth, right? You're not going to get that data, you know, that good throughput going through. So from a storage networking perspective, you want to try to avoid pauses. You want to try to avoid 
TCP drops, you want to make sure that the traffic that you have has enough headroom to be able to be transmitted without any kind of blockage, without any kind of slowing down, without any kind of, of interference. Right. So, so, so latency needs to be fast and consistent. Um, we could describe it that way. Uh, and loss means we don't want loss. Uh, does, That's right. Now, depending on the storage protocol, I'm, I'm trying to drive a nuance home here. I mean, what happens if we lose a frame? What happens if we lose a packet? That does happen. Um, yep. and it's inevitable. So, but I mean, it's not like the, 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 it's not like the storage array goes offline and there's smoke. I mean, it's not that dramatic. There's a retransmission, right? Can be. I mean, but it all depends on, on where the transmission exists in the, in the, in the stack. So for instance, you know, at, at the very top level of the stack, if you've got an operating system that's doing a write to a target, it's going to be expecting an acknowledgement back. Right. So at the very, very top level, that's what it's going to be expecting. And if it doesn't get the acknowledgement back, um, it's going to try to retransmit. But the time in between those two events could be from, you know, from a, a storage perspective, ages. It could be mm. eons. And and the, the issue is if you have really highly transactional data, that can cost you an awful lot of money. So, for instance, where you're talking about the, the fintech people, the financial people who have mm -hmm. measured down to the nanosecond how much a, 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 a nanosecond of latency costs them, which is actually a lot more than I thought it was when I first heard it. Um, they, they get really upset if they, they have an additional you know, microsecond of latency uh, That's because now you're, now you're doing retransmission, which is not actually a microsecond. It's more like hundreds of microseconds. So... So loss actually has pretty profound impacts on on not just that one particular write or read, but also every other one that's queued after that. So there's a there's a knock on effect. So so loss has profound implications for you know for databases for transactions for for having you know having to need to you know credit and debit at the same transaction to make it work because the only time storage actually works is when you get that last bit back. You know, it's not the latency is not the first bit you get back on a ping. It's the last bit because you can't do anything unless you've got that last bit back. Now, to what know, happens if you to know that 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 storage transaction is done? It's been committed. Right. You're done. Now I can move on to the next thing. Yeah. Right. So what happens is so latency is the time it takes to get that last bit back to where it needs to be. And you're confirmed that it's done. That's what latency really means. Jitter is what happens if you've got 10 packets and you get nine of them back on and the last mm. one is stuck, right? So, um, and then, you, then, then the next time you do a 10 packet, then all 10 go through. And then the next time it goes through, eight are stuck, right? So the jitter is the variance between latencies. And that's really where people start to get upset now because NVMe is so fast, you notice it more. If you've got a hundred microsecond latency on an eight millisecond hard drive, you don't notice it. Right. But if you've got a hundred microsecond latency on a hundred microsecond latency NVMe drive, you really notice it because hmm. now you're not doing anything for twice the time. So, so that's where things start to get really, really persnickety. That's a very official term uh, for, for network, you know, uh, design, because you want to make sure that your margin for error is well within the confines of what the storage is now able to do. This will get worse, by the way, when we start talking about persistent memory over fabrics, which doesn't happen yet, but it will. Right. So, so to that end, um, there are all kinds of things currently being, you know, being worked on about that end, but that gets into a completely different kind of conversation. <laughs> and then, yeah. So, 
So loss, loss is what it, it losses the nuclear option, right? When you lose a, a packet from from the perspective of storage, you now have a major recovery effort. Like I said, from that perspective, you know, well, from then, a, a host, it may not seem like that, but from storage does. No, it, it, it it's interesting too in that with um, less mission critical sorts of packets that we might be dealing with that are uh, UDP in real time, for example, you and I are mm -hmm. talking over a Zoom chat and there's an audio and a video component here. If mm -hmm. one of the packets is lost between the two of us, it's lost. We There is no recovery. There is no, we have to have that. We have to wait until the packet makes it. It's just yep. gone. And the trade-off that we suffer then is in quality. We'll hear uh, some kind of jitter in the voice. We'll lose some video frames. You'll freeze up for a second. Uh, and that's just, I mean, you, you know, it's one of those things you can live with. Storage is more critical than that. You cannot... Um, you don't lose a packet and then, oh, oh, well, it's lost. I guess we just, you know, we didn't commit that to the uh, to the target. Oh, well, no, you have to have it. And so therefore, it, again, you mentioned that cascading effect earlier. If you lose it and you got to wait to get that recovery mm -hmm. and get that uh, written, then other transactions are stacking up behind waiting. And that can have, a, you know, an, an on effect the latency of the storage ongoing and performance of the application. Well, it all has to do with their tolerance level. Right. So, for instance, you, you, I like your Zoom, your Zoom, uh, you know, metaphor there, because if we get a little bit of a stutter or a little, which ironically happened as you were talking yeah. uh, to me, <laughs> but uh, if you give you a little bit of a stutter or if you get a little bit of a, of a, a you know, a jitter, we don't really care. Right. Mm. Because we've moved on. You know, we don't really yes. notice sometimes. I mean, a lot of the times we don't even notice. Um, it, however, storage notices and storage cares. Mm. It would be the equivalent zoom equivalent of every time something went wrong the zoom would quit and you have to get back into it yeah not mm. only get back into it you've got to restart your computer to restart you know to clear the buffers out it that's what a storage device feels every single time it sees a drop mm. it's that kind of annoyance okay jay so very low latency and um no loss we need a lossless network that is ideal um losslessness is uh, is key here and uh, implicitly then uh, jitter it, we don't want any jitter we want consistent latency profile all the time so then if i'm looking at a hardware switch what kind of speed does this thing have to have to have to pull that off well, as fast as possible of course, <laughs> but, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, uh, as fast as you can possibly afford uh, I think the minimum the minimum speed that you're looking at is probably 10 gig, and and that was true five years ago. Um, I I if you're going to be running modern, you know, Ethernet based NVMe or Fabrics networks, I would really push for uh, a higher you know a higher bandwidth. But but if you're if you're just looking for best effort type of stuff, then you know a 10 gig switch would be perfectly fine. You know maybe a you know maybe a small you know, a small type of a deployment, but, but it, you know, we obviously can, the we can more zoom you get in a little tighter, I think in that, um, from some of the reading I've done, correct me here, you, you need to be under 10 microseconds of latency across the fabric between host and target. Is that right? No, 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 no. That's a, uh, okay. I, just, I know where that came from. The goal of NVMe over fabrics was to create a transport protocol that would not cost more than 10 microseconds in additional latency over the PCIe version. So I think okay. what happened was over time that kind of got morphed into, well, it has to be within my, uh, you can't guarantee 10 microseconds of latency in a leaf spine network. You just can't, right? Especially, especially if it's misconfigured. So the protocol itself is not going to uh, do what they're saying is that the binding, 
right? Remember I talked about NVMe fabrics is really the, the shim layer between yeah, yeah. the protocol and the transport. That binding can't add more 10 microseconds, more than 10 microseconds, not the network transport. Huh, so it's just okay. it's just the connection between the NVMe protocol and the network transport at the at the you know think of it as the NIC layer, but not across the network. Boy, that is misleading. Then on some of the materials that I reviewed here, if it's the if it's the binding, in other words, getting that uh, instruction data plane or control plane, whatever, and and getting it ready to be moved across is where the ten microseconds comes in, as opposed to the transport itself. I started thinking about things like. You buy a switch. It's got a port-to-port latency measurement that is part of this switch. It's got you know right. however many nanoseconds of port-to-port latency, right. and you can kind of do math and, <laughs> and figure that out. You know how to stay under the ten microseconds. But um, so, okay, well, where it comes from, where, where, yeah. where that number comes from, is that the, remember I said originally you needed to have an adapter because the CPU didn't talk to the device properly. Right. You mm-hmm. needed to have an adapter that converted that out. When you took out that adapter and you just had PCIe, there was a there was a like a two and a half times uh, advantage. When you added back in a network adapter, right, to have that connection, now you're adding an adapter again. But they didn't want to go back into that two and a half times of latency because of the fact that you had a you were doing a, a SATA adapter or SAS adapter to to do this. So they didn't want to add in two and a half times. They wanted to go no more than ten microseconds. Hmm. Right. So that's where it came from. Hmm. And then, of course, over time, it kind of, you know, you you get a lot of people who um, see a number. And, and this is one of those moments where the way that storage people think and the way that networking people think overlap in the vocabulary, but not necessarily the concept. Hmm. Okay, Jay. So the hardware switch needs to be as fast as we can afford, um, no less than 10 gigabit Ethernet. What about the buffer characteristics of the switch, which is a hugely controversial topic? Uh, yeah, isn't but, it? Though? Talk about it. Um, the, the, so there's there's two reasons why I'm not a, I am not a big fan of big buffers. Okay, um, part of the reason is that when you have large buffers, you do a couple of things. One, you introduce a lot of latency into the system. Right. Mm-hmm. But you also introduce a lot of unpredictability into the system. You don't know exactly how quickly that buffer can be evacuated. Right. You're adding transit time for however yep. long that packet is sitting in the buffer waiting to be transmitted. And the bigger the buffer, the, it, you know, if you're sitting out way at the end of the buffer and there's going to be a long time to transmit, the bigger the buffer, the longer that potential transmit time could be, which flies right, right. in the face of what we were talking about earlier, needing consistent yep. latency, not wanting jitter. That's right. So, so when you when you start to get down into the the really low numbers, jitter becomes a much bigger factor than the, than the actual latency itself. Hmm. Most of the customers that I've talked to, or most of the people that I've spoken to, deploy this would much rather have a fifty microsecond consistent latency than a ten microsecond latency that bursts up to one hundred and fifty. They would much rather have the consistency, even if it's overall a, a higher number, because that consistency makes a lot of disaggregated and software-defined storage environments unhappy. And so they, they, and you add on top of that, things like garbage collection inside of the drive, and you've got an, a, just a nightmare of waiting to happen. The last thing you want is to be holding things off in a buffer over a switch only to get to the storage device, which is currently going through garbage collection and is getting into another queue, right? So, there, so there's, a, there's a lot of stars that have to align. And that's one of the reasons why buffers in the network is one of those things that you can't control at the storage layer, which is why the storage people get a little bit, you know, nervous about that. I'm much more a fan of um, proactive queuing, 
You know, I'm a bigger I'm a bigger fan of really small buffers, but very intel intelligent queuing processes. So I particularly like um, I, I, I used to work at Cisco. This is the disclosure. I don't work there anymore, but I have been a fan of, you know, their active queuing, um, you know, mechanisms, you know, the way that they handle the, you know, the watermarks for what constitutes an elephant flow versus a mice flow and be able to mm -hmm. triage, you know, the traffic based upon upon that because of the impact of the packet size on latency for storage. This is some rate rate shaping going on, and it, it makes it so that the elephant flow doesn't clobber everybody else. If you're a That's small right. flow, you get a better opportunity to get through the queues, uh, to get through a buffer. If you're an elephant flow, you're going to get slowed down. Well, actually, you prioritize those mice flows. That's really what happens. Hmm. So in in those in those kinds of environments, now I can like I said, I can only really speak to the, the kind of switches that I'm familiar with. And I I'm not. I'm not a competitive person by nature, so I don't know what other companies do. This may happen otherwise. I don't. I just don't know. But the idea is that you you read the amount, the size of the packets as it comes in on the ingress, and you kind of shunt it off to the side if it reaches more than a certain size. I don't remember exactly what it is, but let's let's just say for the sake of arguments, 128k. It's that's a large that's a large flow, mm. right? Uh, so you just you just put it off to the side and you make sure that all the little mice flows can go through really quickly and then you put it back onto the onto the train tracks and send it on its way. Um, it's just it's just a matter of prioritizing the traffic on the egress based upon what comes in on the ingress. And I've always been a bigger fan of that than just just using the blunt instrument of a larger buffer, you know, because it just it just winds up being this kind of catch all that can cause, you know, uh, additional problems in the end to end pro in the end, -to -end, end state. Yeah, I'm glad you hit a lot of the nuance that's there because um, I, I think this is starting to fade out. But for a while there, vendors were pushing switches with big buffers as like the answer for storage networking. That was a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, a lot of us that kind of understand some queuing theory and how buffers work are going, yeah, it helps with losslessness maybe, but the latency is going to suck unless you manage that very carefully. And so I never felt either like large buffers were the answer and i just hope that uh, networking as, a, as an industry we've kind of moved beyond that this presumption that a big buffer is the right answer it's a right-sized buffer is really what you, what you want whether it's large or not well it's it's understanding the fact that you you push bottlenecks to different places when you start making these kinds of decisions hmm. right so yes you may solve the the no drop problem by having larger buffers so you don't have to do the pause frames as much right because your buffers are bigger that's a good thing but from an end-to-end -end perspective, there are consequences, right? So you don't get it for free. Hmm. You get it in the cost of additional latency, additional jitter, and you, you may solve the problem with the, the PFC, but you introduce other issues that you have to address as well. So you don't get anything for free. There's always a trade-off and you have to understand what they are before you start. Okay. Okay, Jay, so we've talked about uh, the speeds. Uh, we've talked about buffers and what we care about for buffers and switches. Now let's talk about QoS features, several of which have come up already in the conversation, PFC, ECN, yeah. uh, RED, other things. So talk through what the switch must have to effectively support NVMe over Fabric. Okay, so I, I've been thinking about this, um, about how we can possibly talk about this in a way that is, is intuitive to people. Um, the big question really has to do with what tool do you use when, right? When do you handle the bandwidth? When do you handle congestion? When do you react to it? When do you uh, deal with uh, contention for resources? Uh, does it happen at the endpoints? Does it happen in the switch? Where does it happen? 
And when does it happen? Because the when is a real big deal. Because just simply throwing out acronyms is just going to confuse people, especially over audio, I think. So start with the, you know, the idea of the bandwidth, because that's where we would kind of start, right? Um, when we start talking about the bandwidth, we talk about converged Ethernet. You want to make sure that your storage network and your, your LAN traffic aren't really contending for the same resources all the time. So the best possible way that you can do this is to provide a guaranteed minimum bandwidth. And so, for example, if you've got your land traffic and you've got your storage traffic and you want, a, let's say you've got a, a 10 gig link, you want to give five gig to your storage, you want to give five gig to your, your land traffic. But you also don't want to limit it to five gig, right? So if you've got no storage traffic or you've got no Ethernet traffic, you want the other one to be able to use as much as it can up to the yep. 10 gig. Right. So that's what QoS does. QoS happens to manage the relationship between the bandwidth on the wire. That's what QoS does uh, when we start talking about things like classes of service. So costs or classes of service has to do with how you manipulate the the uh, the priorities. They're called priorities or lanes. Most people think of them as lanes, or some people even call them channels. But I don't think they do that too much anymore. But if I've got you know these two classes of service. Um, I, I can, I can assign 50%, you know, in one class and 50% in the other. That's what cost quas does, right? That's what the quality of service does. Now, what I do on those classes of service is completely up to me, right? I can make them lossy. I can make them lossless. If I want to make them lossless, then I'm going to put in a way that will in, ensure that no packets are going to get dropped along the way or no frames at the layer two level are going to get dropped along the way. In order to do that, I need to make sure that I have some flow control on the priority lanes, right? So, so priorities is kind of also a misnomer, but priority does not mean I'm going to make this one more important than the other. What it means is that I've got different classes or different lanes that the traffic is going to work on. That's confusing to some people, but that's why it's called PFC or priority flow control, because you're applying the principle to a priority and there are eight of them. Right. So there are eight priorities in, in the standard, which is 802.1p in case anyone cares. Yeah. Um, and so I will apply a, a no drop lane or a, a priority or put pause frames on one of those classes. And then I will associate a, a quality of service ratio onto that. Right. Link. So, so, so let's, let's just you know, rewind for a second here. So we're talking about um, <laughs> 802.1p, which is if you've got uh, a VLAN tag, 802.1q, 802.1p would be part of that. And that is a, a value uh, that is assigned to that ethernet frame to define it as part of a particular class. We can define right. multiple traffic classes in a QoS scheme like this. So right at the moment, I mean, we're going to work up to the layer three stuff in DSCP if you're a QoS person, you know, in a bit. But at the moment, we're down at layer two, talking mm -hmm. about 802.1p and, and cause, class of service. And what we do with storage traffic that has been tagged with a particular class of service and how we treat it. So, Jay, you're saying, okay, we can take one particular class that maybe needs uh, uh, pause frames, P uh, PFC, priority flow control, and mm -hmm. treat the traffic that has been tagged in that way with that class of service value with um, this priority flow control. And priority flow control, it's not it's not rate shaping like a traffic shaping. It's rate shaping um, done with pause frames, which is, hey, you know, you need you sender need to stop sending me traffic for a little bit because I am congested on this end. Is that the the rough idea? Yes. Um 
Wow, you covered a lot of a lot of different subjects there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm 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 I know what you're talking about, and, and the answer to the question is yes. Um, uh, let me let me kind of backtrack a little bit and see if I can kind of break it down into nice com, you know consumable chunks here. Uh, for me, for me personally. So if, if I've got two classes of service, you know, that go on to two different priorities, I don't, I don't have to have all eight. I can, I can just use eight, two. eight are available right. to us, but right. We're right. talking about just a couple of right. them at the moment. Yeah. Just like, just, yeah, exactly. And I can put in each class of service, I can put as many VLANs as my, my switch will allow me to do. Right. As, as long as the addressable, I can put it that many VLANs inside of those classes of service that the switch will allow me to do. Um, and if I've got, let's say I've got, I want to have, I don't know why anybody would do this, but let's suppose you wanted to have FCOE traffic and Rocky V2 traffic. You could put that into the same class of service and have no drop pause on that class of service. And they'd have multiple VLANs for each of those different storage types, right? So you could do that. And then you'd have VLANs for your TCP traffic for storage in the other class of service that goes along with, um, you know, the classes of service for best effort, right? So because of the fact that you're not putting pause frames on that, we don't. So you can put the NVMe over TCP inside of the same class of service traffic as you would with the best effort stuff without necessarily needing to, um, you know, do anything special to it as far as the quality of service or the class of service. So just separating those two things out at the, at the, the high level. Yes, you have two classes. I've got no drop in one. I've got drop in the other. And they will both react accordingly to what traffic type is going over there with no issues. And then I can associate how much bandwidth percentages I want on top of that. And then we'll have a minimum guarantee. Okay. So the bandwidth percentages. Now, just for clarification, are we talking about a, a true traffic shaper there that as the traffic is heading out the port, it's an egress traffic shaping queue? Or are we talking about using PFC to uh to, to slow things down and rate shaping in that way the former the former so so okay. really realistically what, what if you've got let's say you have a sending port that has a queue for each of these different classes of service and it's told that it has to make sure that the minimum guaranteed bandwidth for class three for instance is 50 percent mm -hmm. that that if i need that 50 percent, the egress port is going to say i'm going to give my alternating, uh, my alternating send to make sure that fifty percent is yeah. always guaranteed to that traffic. That has, as regardless of whether you've got PFC or not, nothing to do with that. Just, just, just clarifying for the audience here. We're talking about traditional, yeah. um, you know, token bucket traffic shaping kind of thing, mm -hmm. and splitting that traffic between and going back to a point you made before, which is not a um, a limiter. It doesn't mean you can't go above. Uh, Right. In our example of, uh, you know, five gigabits per second, if more bandwidth happens to be available, but during right. a time of congestion, you're going to get uh, that guaranteed minimum amount of bandwidth yeah. for that, that lane of traffic as you described it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, I mean, if you've got, you know, if you plan for the minimum guaranteed bandwidth, you're going to be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. Being able to have extra bandwidth has never really hurt anybody. So if you plan on 10 gig, but you're only guaranteeing five, you will wind up with issues. Right. You need you need to be planning your links for the maximum amount of traffic that's going to go through it. Of of course, uh, that, right. and that's you know well, you'd be surprised traffic doesn't uh, you'd be surprised doesn't people, people well, yeah people will actually calculate the link speed rather than their guaranteed bandwidth speed as as part of um, their fan in ratios and oversubscription. It can cause them some problems. Huh. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, there's there's still a. There's, 
you can't suck the ocean through a straw. You got to have a big enough pipes to handle your traffic load. That's that's a fundamental network design principle that doesn't change just because it's storage traffic with uh, QoS. QoS does not fix a bandwidth problem. You still, at the foundational yeah. layer, have to have enough pipe between uh, source and destination, just like any other traffic flows you'd be planning for. Preach, brother, preach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, okay, so we need switches that have um, this fundamental QoS capability we're dealing with. You need, um, you're, you're typically going to have at least eight traffic classes that you can do something with. One or maybe two of those classes are going to be assigned to storage traffic. You're going to want to be able to do traffic shaping. You're going to want to have um, a couple of other uh, acronyms here. We, we keep talking about PFC, um, ECN, Explicit Congestion Notification. Uh, mm -hmm. Red may come up, uh, Weighted Random Early Detection, which is a, a tail drop mechanism when your buffers start to fill up. Uh, these are all things that we we need to be able to do so that, going back to what we were at, talking about earlier with the characteristics of the fabric, we're trying mm -hmm. to deliver storage traffic with low latency, essentially no jitter, and uh, and lossless. These are the tools that are at our disposal that we need to have in the switch uh, so that we can deliver the characteristics of this network fabric. Well, it's in the switch and in the endpoints. So, I mean, you can send you can send ECN uh, packet markings all day long from the switch, but if the endpoints don't read it, it's kind of pointless. So you uh, that, right, yeah. So, so the so the, this is this is a really good point because we talked about the link itself, but now we have to talk about the endpoints, and this is where things get a little bit weird because we talk about endpoints on a link by link basis for an end to end solution, which means that it's it's kind of easy easy to get lost as to where we're talking about. So, what um, when remember when I said we we need to focus on the whens of when we're going to be doing these things and when things are happening? Well, you were talking about red. Red is a, is the first the next first stage on the endpoints, right? So what red will do is red will create a watermark to note, to, to you know, observe whether or not the congestion is happening. I identify the queuing levels and the queue levels, excuse me. And then if uh, it'll keep a, uh, a running tally as to whether or not there are issues with those congestion, uh, with the queue, it's based upon congestion. When it determines that it will probably send a message to the ECN protocol to mark this. And then what ECN does, or explicit congestion notification, what it does is it doesn't stop the packet. What it does is it lets the packet go on through to its destination, but it marks a bit inside of the packet to let the destination know yep. that there is congestion or at least congestion on the way. And then what the destination does is it says, hey, you, sender, slow down. <laughs> So right. it sends a packet back to it sends a packet back to the sender, and the sender will will uh, if if it's configured to do so properly, it will say, "Oh, I got to you know slow down on my on my sending of the packet so that I don't overwhelm the buffers." So, um, but, but but again, to your point there, the endpoint's yeah. got to know to do that. It has got to see yep. those ECN bits that are set in the uh, it's in the IP toss fields. The last two bits of what we were. You know, IP toss, six of those would be used for DSCP. And I think it's the last two that are used for ECN, you know, setting a mm -hmm. value, telling us that it's got to be able to read that in the header and then send that, um, is it a TCP act going back? I forget, but they're, you know, it, with the bit set so that it goes back towards the sender so that the sender receives the notification. Oh, I got to slow down. Right. As you were saying, if your endpoints don't yeah. support that or aren't configured for that potentially, I suppose, then, uh, 
then you've got a great network path that's doing the things it's supposed to do and endpoints that don't care about that information, which isn't helpful. Well, but then at the same time, your endpoints need to know what to do with an ECN marking. Yeah. Like yeah. all it is is just notification. Yes. So, you know, if you're using DCTCP, for instance, which does know how to handle the the scale back mechanism or um, in in Rocky, for instance, there are some vendors that have inside of their Arnix uh, proprietary methods for handling that before it goes up to the, um, you know, up, up into the, the NVMe layer. Um, so being able to know what to do with ECN at the endpoints makes a big difference, right? Now, ECN is the endpoint protocol, or that's where the reaction really winds up being done. You don't respond to ECN inside of a switch, but a switch will have read to tell the ECN that it is inside of the switch. That's why I'm saying this is an end-to-end -end problem right. that's kind of being managed on a link-by-link -link basis. So that's where uh, things kind of get interesting. If you happen to be having traffic that's lossless, you know, that you're going to be using priority flow control, then what will happen is that um, the ECN marking could be used, uh, or you know, the, the the red could be used to identify, you know, the switch that this is where we should probably be prepared to start doing pauses, and you'll you'll set it in such a way that you want to make sure that your your priority flow control is uh, set at a, at a a watermark that is um, higher than the ECN or uh, or red watermarks, right? Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to pre prematurely, um, you know, trigger the PFC or, or too late, you know, pr trigger the PFC, right? So, so that's, red, that's weighted random okay. detection where we, the buffer is beginning to fill. We've got packets that are now sitting in the buffer and we've still got room in the buffer potentially to take more, more stuff in. And so we're going to say, we, we should slow some things down because the buffer's starting to fill up. We're not ready to pause yet. Um, but as that buffer continues to fill and as we're sending, you know, ECN along that ECN can then be used as the buffer is getting closer and closer to full. We hit that watermark, as you're saying, where the buffer is just about full at, guys, we got to slow down. We're at risk of actually losing something because the buffer will be full. I won't have anywhere to put that frame. If you mm -hmm. send it, you got to pause. You, you've got that's to right. pause now, but it's, it's, that's our last ditch effort. That's right. And you want that lower than a regular TCP traffic because of the fact that the, the way that priority flow control works is that you have to have enough time to get the packets on the wire through in order to yeah. send that message back. Right. Because you can't you send a message back to the, the endpoint. Um, there may be enough frames in flight if you don't set that watermark high enough or if you, if you set the watermark too high, you may wind up with those frames getting dropped because nobody knows that they're actually in, in danger. You lose your control plane messaging, in other words. You know, yeah, you it's it. nice to, to create that message and send it, but if the network is so congested that it's uh, that you've got nowhere to put it, then it ends up getting dropped, and the other end is now ignorant of this thing that happened, even though we tried to send a message. We tried. And that's an example of what I what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is this is what you design for, right? You you just can't attach red or ECN and say I it doesn't matter whether I've got lossy or lossless because there are differences and there are consequences for these settings based upon you know what your expected behavior is supposed to be, you know. So th this has all been a, a switch conversation, Jay, a, a rather lengthy one as it's working out, but uh, you know, speed fast as you can, uh, buffers uh, not too big. And um, in, in, our, in our version, this is an arguable point across the industry for sure, but in our opinion, you know, not too big. And even if they are big, you're actually managing how much is going in those buffers with QoS tools. We're talking PFC, ECN, and RED is what we've been talking about. So you need a switch that has these QoS capabilities. 
I would say, just in my experience dealing with a variety of different hardware switches, there's always QoS capability in there of some flavor. Um, mm -hmm. You need to be careful as you look at a switch that you're specifying to do this job and make sure that PFC is there. I wouldn't assume automatically it's there. It may be, but um, not every switch is going to have uh, that capability or necessarily be able to set an ECN bit or the way it's done may be nuanced and may matter to you with exactly what capability is there. So just because it says on the data sheet, traffic shaping, well, what does that mean exactly? And what are the capabilities? As you get into that, that can uh, be relevant. So that's one of those things you'd want to dig into. Um, Jay, another switch capability and kind of the last one to wrap up this part of uh, the conversation goes back to, to protocol support. So if we're talking NVMe, over uh, over fabric using TCP, well, that's not a switch capability. It's just carrying TCP packets in an Ethernet frame. We're just talking Ethernet here. What about Rocky? Um, is that that's is that a different animal that I need to have special switch support for? No, no. So so th think of your think of your protocol stack. You know, from the wire up into the application layer. Rocky is one of those things that happens at closer to the application layer than it does at the networking layer. And, and as a result, it's, it's always handled at the endpoints. So switches do not care what the upper layer protocols are for, for uh, RDMA or, or NVMe. They just, they, they don't, and they shouldn't, to be perfectly blunt. If, if um, I remember right, just to simplify it for the engineers listening, Rocky is just an InfiniBand frame with an Ethernet frame wrapped around it. Is that about right? For for all intents and purposes, that's a that's a sufficient explanation. I mean, uh, obviously, the InfiniBand guys are probably screaming into the phone right now, or into the radio, going, "No, no, it's a lot more nuanced than that, you morons!" But uh, I'll wear that hat. But you know, realistically, you know what what happens is the upper layer protocols for RDMA are InfiniBand based. This is true, um, by and large, and the uh, the entire idea idea is that once it gets into a TCP uh, packet, the RDMA is out of the picture, right? It's just handled like a TCP packet. It's just handled like, uh, it, by the way, NVMe over TCP is exactly the same way. Once it's inside of the TCP packet, it's just handled like a TCP packet. There's no additional knowledge from a switching perspective necessary. Hmm. It's all handled okay. at the endpoints. Okay. Um, we have mentioned that leaf spine would be a common topology that is used here because of the predictability of network characteristic that such a topology gives us. Right. Over subscription, Jay, between the layers, uh, leaf and spine, is there a, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess the obvious answer is one-to-one. -one. Is that really where we need to be or? Um, it's, it's funny because I know that there are recommendations for one-to-one. -one. There's even recommendations for under subscription. Yeah. You know? 0.08 uh, to one I've seen from uh, some Cisco yeah. docs. Yeah. You, I hope you mean 0 0.8, not 0 0.08. Yeah, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. 0 0.8. What? I'm sorry. Yes, 0 0.8 to 1. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's 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 a lot of that's a lot of uh, wiggle room right there. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so vendor recommendations are going to have a lot to do with that that particular number. Um, generally speaking, if if what you want to have between the leaf and the spine itself is as much of a holistic bandwidth that you can possibly get because it, it then things start to get really weird in the calculations once you start to talk about the endpoints so if i've got let's say for example i've got 100 gig you know uh links between a leaf and a spine and i have 100 gig on my storage device so i've got let's say i've got you know 10 100 gig 
posts that are going to go through with leaf through the spine and back down into a hundred gig uh, target. So I, if I, if I don't have a one-to-one relationship, I don't have a hundred gig to a hundred gig to a hundred gig. Instead I have, um, you know, a thousand to a hundred to a hundred to a hundred. That's a 10 to one oversubscription, mm-hmm. right? As long as those links between the leaf and spine are one-to-one or better. As soon as I start to have missing, mixing and matching of, of link speeds and the, you know, the, the, the spraying over a number of ports, it's not as efficient. Mathematically, it's not as efficient if you start having a whole bunch of small ports and as opposed to one big port, one big pipe. And then you get into some really complicated math um, for that kind of configuration. It's just a lot easier to have a one-to-one or better. Hmm. Well, what about uh, for 25 gig hosts connecting to one 100 gig target? Uh, not in the same switch, but like like across the fabric. Are we we okay there? Well, are we are we talking about between the leaf and the spine, leaves and the spine, leaf leaves and the spines? Or are we talking about distributed across we, multiple leaves? I mean, the, you brought in the, another uh, another point. You you made the point of the host uplinking at 100 gig. And then maintaining a one-to-one oversubscription between leaf and spine, and then the the target being on hundred gig as well. But but having a hundred gig path end to end. But I mm-hmm. think a pretty common scenario might be, um, say for hosts connected at twenty five gig talking to a target that's uplinked at hundred gig somewhere across oh, okay. the fabric across the other side of right. the spine. Are we okay in that scenario? Sure. I mean, so so the idea is that as long as your calculations are you know within the application parameters. Right. So like I said, certain certain types of databases want lowers over subscription ratios. So for let's say you've got um, 25 gig hosts connecting into 100 gig and their recommend ratio is is four to one. Right. So you've got 16 hosts into that one target would be a four to one ratio at that at that number. Right. Mm-hmm. If you go for 17, then you're you're oversubscribed from the application requirement. If you've got, you know, 50 gig links or if you've got 100 gig links, you know, the um, the oversubscription ratio changes, right? So if you've got a, a four to one oversubscription ratio and you got hundred gig links from the from the host to the first switch, now you can only do four. So twenty five gig would give you sixteen, four would give you, you know, uh, you know, hundred gig links would give you four. So so the calculation just needs to be aware. Don't don't think that because you've got sixteen hosts and you've got hundred gig links up there, you can put all sixteen and and not have consequences. And I think that's where some people get some kind of. I think there's an underlying principle here, which is you need to be looking for where the congestion points could be, Mm -hmm. no matter what, no matter how much bandwidth you've got, what your subscription and oversubscription is, you can still be contending for the same port. You can still have packets that are hitting an ASIC at more or less the same time needing to egress at the same point. You want to avoid contention is uh, is the thing. And speed isn't always enough to do that. There's also a design of where things are uplinked that can affect this. Well, there's the ingress as well as the egress, mm. right? So even if you would, even if you were to have this magic leaf spine environment where you had, you know, 100 gig uplinks on completely separate leaves, right? Uh, you still only have that 100 gig link back into the target. So it doesn't matter how many how many different you know how you spread out the load across the the host leaves, you still got the target one that you have to take care of, and mm. it's the, really the rules are going to be you know applied to the target more than the hosts. So yeah, you just you just need to make sure that you keep an eye on that because where people will get caught out is that as they start to grow and as they start to add on different devices, that oversubscription ratio naturally changes and it will depend on where it is. So where people get kind of caught out is that, oh, I didn't realize that I couldn't just 
put in a rack another server with another 100 gig NIC or another 25 gig NIC. Um, now I have to make sure that does my target have the ability to handle that additional workload based upon the way that my network is scans. And, and growing is one of the biggest issues that people have is how do you expand safely? And that's where the pre-planning comes into play. Because in a, in a fiber channel environment, by the way, they already know. They know exactly how far they can grow. They know exactly how many ports they have available that they can then turn on. They know exactly how many ports they can't turn on. And mm. they go as far as to know, I can't turn that one on on that particular ASIC in that particular switch. Right. So they get they get really, really particular about what is uh, available to them and what is not. So just because you have the ports doesn't mean you can always use them. Now, if you're listening to this and we're talking about ASICs all of a sudden, the, the issue here is that you've got front panel ports, the things that you're actually plugging cables and optics and whatever into mapping into uh, a chip, an ASIC inside. Uh, so the number of front panel ports hitting that ASIC can be another point of contention and something you need to consider and, you know, and move around. This was, and the lower bandwidth days is a bigger concern, especially with, um, you know, like, uh, like line cards that you'd slam into a chassis. You would maybe need to distribute ports for an ether channel to make you make sure it goes across different ASICs for either for redundancy or for bandwidth to get the throughput you were looking for out of the ether channel. Right. We're, we're alluding to some, uh, some similar kind of stuff here. All right, yep. Jay, we've, we've, we've beat up hardware a lot. Um, and, uh, and I, there's more that we could talk about, but I, this, there's another final part of the conversation I want us to have today, which is to dive into these QoS mechanisms a bit. It is certainly the place where people get buried and struggle the most. And it's, it, it's hard, um, it, to, oh, to it's get a this card. right. It is, it is really a, a difficult thing. Yep. Uh, so let's, let's talk about QoS mechanisms in some more detail and see if we can, I don't know. It would be difficult to come up with, I suppose, rules of thumb, but at least understanding how these mechanisms work, the problems that they're intended to solve would help us with context so that as network engineers, we know where we should be applying these tools and kind of the ideas of how to configure them and where they interact with one another. Because there's some interaction surfaces here between layer two and layer three, for example, mm -hmm. where, um, again, as you say, it's a dark art. Well, it is, but it's not, it's not undiscoverable magic you know it is a learnable thing and i think we can we can make some headway here let's go back to the conversation we were having earlier about class of service um mm -hmm. that tends to work in we think of it more maybe in the you know pfc world um this class of service then there's also dscp uh which mm -hmm. is another field in which we carry marks and these are not the same thing. In fact, class of service markings aren't even preserved through an Ethernet network because they only live if there's a VLAN tag present, and there isn't always. Mm -hmm. So as we're marking traffic, we're talking about class of service, and we're talking about DSCP. How do, how do those relate? Well, so uh, this, this is where things can get a little tricky. Um, and you're, you're, you're spot on, of course. I mean, the, the idea is that you want to make sure that you're end-to-end -end DCP, DC, ah, DSCP marking. Man, I haven't had enough coffee today. Uh, you you want to make sure that your end-to-end -end DSCP markings are, I can't say it. I don't know what it is. It's like, <laughs> like seashells, seashells by the seashells. Uh, so if you want to make sure that, the, you know, markings are the same as the cause markings across the board, right? You want to map those two things across the board. And this is particularly true if you're going to be doing uh, priority flow control, because whatever cost value you have in, going into a switch is going to be, you know, put in, has to be put back into another cost value on the egress. Uh, 
So if you're marking these in a DSCP, hey, I said it, hey, uh, fashion, you have to make sure that on an end-to-end basis, your, your mapping is consistent across the network. So you, you can't mix and match, um, you know, not very successfully anyway. And this is a fundamental QoS principle. You're going to mark traffic on ingress. The mark should mean the same thing as it traverses that network hop by hop. So you need to preserve that mark. And then, right, if you need to remark traffic on the way out, then um, you, you need to do that consistently so that the behavior, the policies that you're writing are acting in a predictable way. And what you're going to be acting on is the mark that has been assigned to that class of service, layer two frame, or DSCP value at uh, at layer three, if it's just an IP packet that we're worried right. about. So that's, that's the thing, that's the issue that we're getting at here. And so somehow, Jay, we got to go from class of service, what that, the mark is, what that Ethernet frame has been marked with on the way into the network, map it to a DSCP value that is at mm-hmm. layer three and that IP uh, toss byte that's part of the IP header, and then preserving mm-hmm. that throughout the network. And then it's up to us as network engineers to know what the scheme is, what these marks mean. So that as they, they show up at uh, different switches and we need to make decisions about them, we, we know what the marks mean and then we have written the policies accordingly. Right, right, absolutely. And and consistency is key. Um, you know, again, planning, knowing exactly what you're going to do before it happens. The, the, it's also useful, I think, to keep, keep the layer two and the layer three behaviors separate. Right, you're you're creating a connection point between the markings, right, between DSCP and, and cost, but don't worry about priority flow control at the layer three level because it's not a layer three issue. So don't worry about DSCP markings as no drop. They're not. You will not find a no drop DSCP marking. It just doesn't exist. The only time DSCP is mapped to a no drop is through class of service. And that's why the relationship between class of service and DSCP, even on a link by link basis, has to be consistent across the board. Um, but it, think of it as a one, you know, one two punch, right? This is always uh, a, a, a step process. You can't shortcut that. Okay. Uh, so the storage, uh, the host of the target is going to uh, assign a class of service value to that Ethernet frame as it sends it into the network. And then it's that first hop switch's job to map that class of service uh, value, that marking, to a DSCP mark? Uh, it depends. If that's a layer three switch, then yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's if it's just a layer two switch, then it probably wouldn't until it hit a layer three boundary. Um, but, you know, it, generally speaking, once it gets to a, a, some sort of layer three switch or a router, then it would do the mapping part of it, you know, for that layer three traffic shaping that'd be, you know, at that point. Now, the implementation for the mapping that I've typically seen, we're dealing with um, 802.1p class of service values only have uh, three bits to work with, eight values. And so that tends to map to the first three bits in the DSCP field, even though DSCP is a six-bit field that has up to 64 values. To keep the mapping simple, you take that class of service, those three bits, map that to the first three bits of the DSCP field. I think I have that right, Jay. Sounds right. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it sounds right from what I can what I can recall. Okay. And then that, now that we've got the, all we've accomplished here so far is we've marked the packet so that we know how to treat the thing as it shows up right. uh, hop by hop. Now you, you made an important distinction between PFC not being a layer three problem and, and vice versa, ECN not being a layer two problem. So let's start with PFC. Um, as a packet 
comes into the network and let's walk through a scenario where we're going to need to have PFC react to this congestion and then end up have, uh, instituting a, a pause frame to cause us to uh, to cause the network to slow down a bit. Let, let's walk through that so people understand the situation that creates the reaction and then what the reaction actually does. Just a quick just clarification question. Are we talking, uh, how does PFC work? Are we talking about and you know the steps of the process for um, you know communicating back and forth between devices? Let's start with how PFC works, and then okay. let's take that context and apply it to a situation. Okay. Um, yeah, makes sense. So PFC works by being able to determine whether or not it has enough room to accept all of the packets coming in flight, right? If it determines that it can't handle the packets, the, the maximum number of packets that are available in flight, it will send a message back to the sender to pause, that's called pause frame, uh, to, to prevent it from sending any further. This feels like the credits idea you were talking about earlier in the show? It's the same functionality, but a different mechanism. Okay. It has the same net, net effect. So um, one of the, one way to think about it, and I, I have to give credit to a, a friend of mine, you know, Chad Hintz, who is a, like a triple CCIE. He's the one who came up with this. Like, I'm just stealing it shamelessly. Um, but if you imagine two baseball players throwing a baseball back and forth and they each have a, a, a bucket next to them and the center of the baseball is just, just chucking baseballs. Right. And um, the guy is taking the, the receiver, the catcher is receiving the ball and putting it into his bucket. A ball boy comes by and takes the ball out of the bucket so that there's room in the bucket for more balls. And the center has an unlimited amount of, of, of balls to send. He's like, he's sending ball after ball after ball after ball. Catcher keeps catching it and catching it and catching it. And the, the ball boy keeps taking it out. But, Ball boy has other buckets he has to take out. Hmm. So he can't always get to the bucket and it's starting to fill up. Well, the center keeps sending the balls. They're all in the air. So the, the catcher has to send the message back to the center to slow down, or in some cases just stop until all the buckets can be taken out of his, of his bucket. So he takes a red ball with a big pause written on it and he chucks it back at the center and the center gets that ball. And he says, Oh, okay. I can't send any more balls. I'll wait until I get another ball back that says I can go, or I'll just wait for a couple seconds and then I'll start sending again. And if they can't take it, they'll send me another pause for pause ball back. Hmm. That's pretty much how a PSC works. Um, and it works on, on that kind of one-to-one -one relationship. Now the, the issue really can wind up being is that if you happen to have, um, you know, more than you know more more than one of these ball players in a row um and they're all trying to throw at the same time you could wind up with a, a pause situation throughout the net throughout that network of ball players right uh, well so, are we talking about endpoints or are we talking about a multi-hop ethernet network where there's multiple switches in line between host and target anywhere there's a buffer that needs to that will fill up which right? could so because, be an ethernet switch, which could be a that's switch. In, in, along the way okay yeah as a matter of fact in some environments between switches can cause the biggest problems because they haven't gotten a thick enough pipe between the switches to to uh to handle the the amount of traffic coming in on either end so this is this is what i was saying before about you know the oversubscription ratio we were talking about the 100 giga links between the leafs and the spines you know they they'll wind up having that straw to suck packets through without even realizing it between the switches because they'll just think, oh, I got a hundred gig between you know my switches, and not realizing that they've got you know multiples of that on either end. So what happens is you get the same problem that you've had in, in fiber channel, the same problem that you had in FCOE, same problem that you had in lossless iSCSI, which is you have deterministic networks that are getting non-deterministic behavior, and you get head-of-line blocking. 
Now, I've heard the phrase called uh, priority flow control or PFC storms, but that's that's kind of implies as like an STP storm, like a spanning tree storm. These loops, mm-hmm. there's no loops. This is this is end. This is point to point. There's no loops, and it's not really a storm. It's a head of line blocking problem, and it only gets solved once you actually are able to relieve the pressure on those buffers. Hence the you know the conversation about the big buffers before. Um, and yes, the big buffers do help with that. And we've already discussed that part, but the priority flow control is really to be considered a bad thing. It's not a safety net. It is, it is the hard ground. So, you know, from, from that type of perspective, you do not want to see pause frames if you can avoid it. It's just, it's considered a bad thing. So what we want to do, pause frames are implying that the, the buffer at some point here is full or just about full. And we, and again, I think we mentioned before, it's kind of like the last ditch effort to, to, to slow things down. We don't want pause frames because we want that consistent latency between host and target. As soon as we throw a pause frame in, we've changed latency for a, a brief amount of time while the system recovers. Well, you, you basically, you, you, You've changed it because you've added congestion into the network. What, that's what a pause frame does. It adds yep. congestion congestion into the network. Um, it's artificial and, congestion. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah. Right. So, so the issue is that a, a network admin might have the mental attitude that, well, it's a it, you know TCP. If it drops a frame, it'll resend it. This is going to be the same way, right? I'll if I if I have a pause frame, I'm preventing that from happening, so everything's okay. In reality, what you've really done, it's, it's like I said, it's a mental mindset that a pause frame indicates that you've, you've really got a badly designed, you know, uh, connection. And, and I, I, I say that I don't mean to be so harsh. It's not that it's badly designed. It's just there are there are consequences to the current design that go beyond what the capabilities of the network can do. Mm. Right. And so what we want to do is we want to try to avoid the PFC. And you're pointing as a last ditch effort. The, the priority flow control pause frame tells you that there is a problem in the network, right? And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm stopping it because there is a problem in the network. And if you have a network admin who sees that there's a problem in the network, that's a different question than just, oh, it'll, re, it'll retransmit. So that's why the, the planning and the design and all that kind of stuff makes a huge difference. So we, that's why making sure your, your red thresholds are appropriate. That's why you want to make sure that your ECN thresholds are appropriate because ultimately you don't want the PFCs to actually happen. You're talking about red and ECN as mechanisms that'll help us with uh, keeping the buffers from getting too full. um, In advance. Yeah. Okay. So walk, walk me through what, what switch or what host or device is originating a pause frame under what circumstances? How does it know what is getting triggered and uh, and how does our class of service factor into this? So there are a couple of different places where you're likely to find this kind of a problem. Uh, one of them happens to be if you've got a an initiator uh, on the host. When I say initiator, I mean the, the network cards on the host. And the way that they, the way that an initiator asks for information from a storage target is, it just says, just send me the data. Give me all the data you can. Just keep on sending, keep on sending, keep on sending. Um, that's the way that the request comes in. And so the storage target will send all the information that it can. It's, if it's got, let's say it's got a hundred gig link, it's going to send it at a hundred gig link if it's just, that's all it can. But you were asking about 25 gig uh, adapters. So if mm-hmm. I'm sending you a hundred gig, but you can only take in 25, 
Now I've got four times the number of packets that I can actually absorb. Mm-hmm. So in that particular case, when the, when the storage target is sending to a slower in, initiator, uh, without any way of doing that, I will overwhelm the buffers on the initiator. So you will get pause frames coming back into uh, into that. So um, this is this is just a natural way of of handling the math, right? But uh, and that's one of the reasons why you want to you want to put in more more hosts and get a nice balance so that 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 target is sending messages to four hosts or 10 hosts or 18 hosts or whatever the proper ratio is um because now i'm not having to necessarily worry about um all going to one particular initiator and overwhelming those things the other part of it too is that you know what what is the workload type i mean is this a very long stream of data or are these just like little bits of going at 100 gig right because you you have the full bandwidth but it may not be a lot of packets so in other words, you'll get you'll get the breadth of the of the the traffic, but not necessarily the depth that may wind up filling up those buffers. You, know, you may get it at the hundred gig speed, but you may not necessarily get the the buffer overload. Um, so those are two things. But another way, another possibility is the the interswitch links, mm-hmm. right? The connections between those. Are you trunking those? You know those links. Are you you know um, you 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 know. You have different types of pruning technologies, right? Are you are you dedicating the interswitch links for storage traffic, or are you kind of you know divvying those up as well? Are you creating cost value on interswitch links? Are you dedicating you know you know big thick pipes for just the storage traffic between the thing? You know, are you using ECMP for multiple leaves and multiple spines? You know, but the, the those are those ways going to be is if the buffer that's been or if the uh, the the traffic shaping, let's say that we've allocated to this class of service, we're starting to hit that, and there's no more bandwidth available on the link. Now we've got buffers starting to fill up. The switch is going to know the buffer has been filled up, and we've got a QoS policy we've written that says, "Hey, in this case, once we hit this threshold, uh, PFC will become active. We're going to send some pause frames towards the sender at that point." Is that mm-hmm. sound right? Yeah. And it can do it to a switch as well as it can do it to an endpoint. Yeah. I mean, okay. one of the things I like about ECMP and, and, and leaf spine environments is that at a higher level of decision making, the switch will determine whether or not a link is uh, is becoming saturated and send it over another link to the same destination through a different spine. Right. And so that gives us that gives us a lot more flexibility long before red or ECN starts to get to be a problem. Because the the actual sending switches will, uh, or, or or in the spine in particular, will be able to identify which links are becoming saturated and which are not, based upon its own knowledge about where the buffers are, uh, where, you know how the queuing is going. Hmm. So so it can actually send out to a different. But if it has to go out that one particular link, then you know ECN might wind up being you know the the way to go. Um, but again, that's a that's a that's a size and scale question too, right? How big is your network? Does it have to be that you actually want to start using leaf spine? Okay. <laughs> well, there's so many little different directions we can take this conversation, but let's let's stick with um, you know, continuing on this PFC and then uh and then then add some ECN here sure. for a second. So if if we if I I'm going to try to do an analogy here. Like you had the uh, the ball boy and the ball bucket analogy a little bit ago. Um right. l- let's make it like a like a glass of uh, water. If that glass were to spill over, you know, we've gone gone too far. PFC is going to kick in before that happens. We're not going to let the glass spill over. We're gonna we're gonna send a pause frame before the glass uh, spills over with water. Now, ECN would be enacted before that, like before the glass is half full. ECN explicit congestion notification may be 
uh, takes effect and starts to, uh, to to slow some things down to mm-hmm. prevent us from getting to that. The glass is almost full. We're going to have to stop transmitting where PFC would kick in. Is that uh, a fair way to describe how we want those two mechanisms to interact? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I like that metaphor. I, I like that a lot, actually. So let's let's say that we've got somebody pouring the water into a glass who's blindfolded, has no idea how much space there is in the glass. And it's your responsibility as a person who's getting the water to notify that person that you're you're running out. How do you know when to get them to, to stop? You say when, right? That's mm-hmm. what we typically do, at least in English. So, <clears throat> so the the sender is pouring, 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 and you're watching and watching and watching, and you know intuitively that you need to notify them that the water is going to overflow. You don't want to wait till it's at the top because it's going to overflow mm-hmm. by the time you actually say it, and they can react. So your mind is going to automatically, based upon the the rate that the water is coming in and the you know the the, the size of the room that you've got, you, then you're going to go ahead and say, oh, go ahead and, uh, uh, and and say you know when or hold off for a second, you know let's 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 wait for a bit. Where things get really interesting is that it. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the person is not pouring consistently. Let's say they're doing this you know kind of real quick and then pulling back and really quick and lots of going in and coming back. So that's where things get really weird. And that's the way that network traffic works, Mm. right? So you get these bursts of of stuff. And so you, as the watcher of the glass, have to try to predict when that is going to be the case to say when, right? Because you don't want him to stop if he's not, if you're going to be able to, you know, to drink in time. But at the same time, you don't want to go all over the place because then, you know, your mom gets mad and you have to start cleaning it up and (laughs) all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, where ECN comes into place is you have to determine what your notification level is going to be when it gets to X amount of space in the glass. When are you going to let them know that they need a pause? And that's where ECN and pause would be related. Now, what I'm not really sure how to fit red into that particular metaphor, but but red is the idea of of making sure that you can actually observe the, the glass. And and I guess the I guess the equivalent would be that I'm not watching the glass all the time. I'm just sort of like watching it every every once in a while. Well, right. Red's the mechanism that's actually going to start marking some uh, packets with the ECN bits uh, mm-hmm. to, to let us know. Red is the, the tool there that uh, weighted random early detection as the buffer is filling up. We've got policy a red policy set that's going to say for these classes of traffic, I want you to mark ECN uh, mm-hmm. values as uh, as it's filling up. And then the threshold of where that's going to happen, we could, we could, uh, we would be configuring again to be uh, lower, a lower threshold for ECN than uh, than PFC. PFC is like we're right at the edge here. We've still got yeah. room in the buffer, but we're almost out of space. Pause again. Yeah. Uh, the, the the last thing we want to do. Um, ECN gives us that anyway. warning buffer, and red is the mechanism that's going to let us do that marking. And you want you want to get really kind of messed up. It all depends on distance. What kind of distance? How do you mean? The distance between devices, the distance between buffers, ports. As so measured I only in br- latency or something? or As measured in feet. Oh, really? <laughs> so, really? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of switches will hard code the buffer space that they've got, and they will put a maximum distance that you can put between end ports, right? So, so one, of the, one of the questions is in, in a data center design, for instance, I happen to have end of row switches and I've got middle of row switches and I even have, um, you know, end of room 
kind of networking and storage devices. Mm-hmm. So the distance between these different uh, devices makes a difference as to how much of a buffer you need to have because all that water is going to be coming through the pipe before it gets to you to be able to realize whether you have to send a pause frame back. Well, that's so, interesting. In, um, in, in, in financial exchanges, I've heard that the length of cables are relevant. You may have competing interests oh, yeah. that are sharing space in there, and they pre-cut cables to be a very specific length so that no one has a competitive advantage because a patch cable was longer for some one person than the other person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. C- the cabling is probably the number one thing that people forget to take into account when designing these systems. Um, and so, so when it comes to the pause frames, you know, the cable type that you use uh, makes a big difference because based upon how far it can go. Some can only go, you know, 30 meters. Some can go fewer, you know, um, but it's the buffers and the switches that are really important, right? Mm. So the, the, the length of, you know, the reason why I say this is that we're really talking kilometers for the most part, um, not, not necessarily inside of a data center. So it's, it's not something that people have to panic about. But at the same time, I I say this only because of the fact that I have heard people talk about doing uh, metro area networks with NVMe and, you know, wide area networks with NVMe and they want to use Rocky. And I cannot think of a more god awful use case for (laughs) NVMe Express than any kind of metro area or wide area network. Well, you were talking about Rocky earlier in the show as being the the mechanism you'd probably use within a rack. And certainly uh, metro area ethernet doesn't, is the opposite of that. So I only, I only say that because while it may be intuitive to me or you, or most of the people on the audience, if anybody's considering it, I would just simply say, no, don't do it. Mm. You know, uh, that's not the right protocol. That's not the right tool for the job. Okay. Jay, we've been going at this for about 90 minutes, and I want to respect your time. Uh, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask you as we close this uh, very lengthy and detailed discussion. Uh, one is SmartNICs. SmartNICs with uh, TCP over NVMe offload, uh, are those a thing, and how do they factor into my network design? So SmartNICs are becoming more more popular and more prevalent. Um, they will have a positive impact on CPU utilization inside of the host. You, one of the things that's kind of interesting about SmartNICs and DPUs and the like is that the storage stack itself is a software stack, and you can actually move a lot of that processing inside of a SmartNIC with the, the data processing units that don't have to be done at a storage target or even inside the host. So yes, you get a lot of CPU utilization back where you can do more, uh, more productive work. From a networking perspective, you, remo- you reduce the amount of I.O because now the processing is being done inside of a network interface card that would otherwise be sent to another location. So an IO saved is an IO gained. And what SmartNICs will allow you to do is reduce the amount of of shadow IO, for lack of a better way of putting it, that just moves the data back and forth that needs to be processed. So by putting those those kinds of storage stack um, functions and features into a SmartNIC, including the TCP offload, including Rocky processing, which you'd always need our NIC anyway, um, you can actually avoid sending an awful lot of IO across the network and that can make everybody happy. Now, once you start adding SmartNICs and computational storage devices, you can get some really interesting and clever uh, IO behaviors that may not even hit the network at all. You know, mm. if you if it's it's one of those things that's emerging. There's not a there's not a clear uh, rule of thumb, no clear policy to go for it, but it is does show a lot of promise. 
And um, I think that SmartNICs and, and computational storage in particular, not to mention things that are going to go on inside the host, like CXL-based disaggregation, um, memory at disaggregation, memory data movement, you know, that ne won't necessarily, would otherwise have to go over a network, no longer has to be done. Uh, so I think in, in a lot of ways, network admins won't even know that their life is getting better because it's just going to be outside of their, you know, their visibility. But uh, the trust boundaries are changes for changing for the workloads and the functions and smart NICs are having a, a lot to do with that. Hmm. Let's look to the future even more, Jay. Um, I was reading up on Ethernet SSD, also known as Ethernet Bunch of Flash. Um, is that, do you think that's going to become a thing? Because I was reading up on the design and the performance and it's like, boy, that looks like a winner to me. It is. It, um, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Now, we've tried to do Ethernet attached drives in the past with hard drives. It It didn't really work because of the fact that the device versus memory metaphor didn't work very well for hard drives. Now, Having said that, you can now attach hard drives, HDDs, with NVMe, right? Mm. You can actually address the. You don't have to have SDSDs uh, or Flash or NAND. You can address hard drives, and the reason why that's the case is because a lot of the major companies, you know, the hyperscalers in particular, didn't want to have multiple protocols to access their storage media, and that is why eBOFs become very interesting because now I can put in capacity drives for hard drives, you know, the the actual spinning disk which has a, a lot higher degree of capacity uh, for archiving or for object stores or any of those kinds of uh, now object stores, obviously not NVMe, but it's a, the interface to the drives can be, you know, NVMe. Um, or you can have NAND flash or, and you basically what happens is you, you attach it directly into the network as opposed to having a controller that as acts as a bottleneck. Normally what happens is you've got a, the network coming into a controller that then translates it into PCIe to communicate to the SSDs on the back end. Now it's just a direct connection to the Ethernet, which has some interesting consequences. It can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing, right? It's good because of the fact that now your calculations for your network are a lot more straightforward, right? You, you, you've got your drives and you're calculating directly how, how um, you know, you're going, to, you're going to connect to it. Your network, your network impact is much more easier to calculate. The problem is that if you've got kind of a bailing wire and duct tape network this could cause issues it is probably the easiest way to screw up your network because it's going to be so easy to attach to it right and there are going to be profound impacts of of the bandwidth because these things are going to have incredibly huge bandwidth impacts on your network right mm -hmm. it's just raw io and and just by way of comparison Five years ago, I could saturate a hundred gig bandwidth link with two Ethernet. I'm sorry, two SSDs, mm -hmm, two mm -hmm. NVMe SSDs. I could saturate a hundred gig link. Yeah. So if I'm going to be putting these things onto, you know, I've got a shelf of eighteen of them. Now we're talking a crap ton <laughs> of bandwidth needs, right? So I can guarantee you that this is not going to be for you know the the faint of heart. But the other part of it is too that. Um, now what's going on is that you've still got your provisioning issues. You still got your, your data redundancy issues. You still got your data protection and that has to be done somewhere, which means that the network impact is going to be shifted elsewhere. It's no longer inside of an array or it's no longer inside of a shelf. It's going to be distributed through some sort of software level somewhere in the network. And that will have an impact depending upon how many we're talking about and what, you know, it's not just control plane. There's actually a data plane element to that as well. So there, there, there are consequences, but it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. And from a data path perspective, it's going to be awesome. From a control plane <laughs> perspective, eh, it needs a little work. <laughs> it, needs, it needs some care and feeding. Let's just put it that way. 
Jay, this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, folks that are listening, I'll tell you, Jay put so much preparation into this script. I mean, he did a, he really put hours into making all of this happen. He didn't just show up, rock up to the mic and start talking off the top of his head. So I hope you got a lot of value out of listening to this show uh, with, uh, with Jay Metz. Jay, how can people follow you on the internet? I can be found on LinkedIn with uh, Jay Metz, just my name. And it's just Jay, no A-Y, no period, just, just Jay. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Jay Metz. Um, and of course, I've got my own blog, which I do, uh, you know, stored short takes every other week. I talk about things that are going on in media and technology and webinars and conferences and blogs and stuff like that. And that's uh, I read Jay everyone. Yep. Yep. Jmets.com and those storage to- short takes are great. And you might get a Jeep story now and again, Jay, uh, you do a uh-huh. Jeeping in your spare time. Yeah, I can, yeah. can can watch the wheel fall off of my Jeep and Moab. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. Uh, this show was the result of a listener request. I had someone go to the Packet Pushers Slack group, which you can find at packetpushers.net slash Slack and sign up for free. They slid into my DMs there and said, hey, I'd like a show that kind of covers this material. And I'm like, I know a guy who knows a thing or two about this. And uh, Jay was willing to come on. You got a, you got a show you want us to do. Uh, yeah, hit me up on uh, again on Twitter at EC Banks or via Slack DM, and um, we'll see what we can do. See if we can find someone that's knowledgeable and then put a show together like this for you. And if you do like nerdy shows like this, and I, I know you do, you listened all the way to the end. The Packet Pushers Podcast Network. We got we got lots of other shows. There's IPv6 Buzz. There's a brand new show we've been working on. Kubernetes Unpacked. Several issues have already or uh, episodes have already come out. Of course, Day Two Cloud, which I co-host with Ned Bellavance. Network Break, Heavy Strategy, and Full Stack Journey. All of those shows are available for free. Just go to the packetpushers.net subscribe page, and we've got all the links conveniently listed so you can do the RSS thing for your podcatcher or Spotify, etc. whatever your choices are. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Packet Pushers. We're also on LinkedIn, and we will let you know about everything that we're publishing. Again, we're, and I've said all those podcasts, we're more than just podcasts. There's lots of written content we're putting out the door as well. And we've been putting out a lot more content on our YouTube channel. And all of that content is for your professional. And all of that content is for your professional career development. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.